Well, good morning. Welcome to Philippi. What a, what a cool thing to be here this morning. Yeah, we, uh, we love Sam at Heritage, and I still have to hear it all the time. Like, he was so great. It's like, shut up. He's been gone for five years. Just get over it. Let him go. Let him release, release Sam. No, I love it. Sam and I, it's been cool. Like one of the really, one of the, I used to live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm an outdoorsman and in Milwaukee, there's not a lot of outdoorsmen. Uh, and, and so I'd go backpacking and, and drag people from the Midwest into the, the Rocky Mountains where I, where, I, where I grew up. And then I moved here. And now as part of my job as a pastor at Heritage, Sam and me and Pastor Aaron and Pastor Jeremy from Heritage, we go backpacking all the time. We've backpacked in Yosemite, we backpacked in the Marble Mountains, the Trinity Mountains up by, we've done winter backpacking behind Mount Ashland, Crater Lake, and every time I'm out there with those guys, I'm just thinking, this is the coolest group of guys. It's such, such a blessing to be so well connected to these godly men and be able to just recreate and spend fun time together outside of just the ins and outs of ministry. So yeah, Sam is a blessing, wonderful friend. I counted a blessing to be able to do ministry alongside him and Heritage. We counted a blessing to be a part of what God is doing here at Philippi. We love hearing reports. Right now, I, I asked Sam when he preached, I said, just tell us the story of Philippi. Tell us what God's doing. We want, our people want to know how God is moving and, and blessing this church. And it's always, a, it's so encouraging. It's, it's encouraging to be here today. You know, as I was coming in this morning, I was, uh, I was drawn to, it's actually in my office this morning, I was drawn to Acts. You don't have to turn there. But I was thinking of the church of Antioch in Acts. We see that in chapter 12. It was at Antioch, uh, which was the first church where believers were called Christians. And that's where Silas was a part of the Antioch church. And he ended up kind of befriending Saul, who later became Paul, and sort of ministered to him and mentored him. And then in Acts 13, just the first couple of verses, I just want to read this to you because it makes sense here in a second. We read that now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I think about that often, this, the, the, sort of the model that we see in Antioch. You know, you got Barnabas and Saul, Paul, who, who would write, you know, half the New Testament, clearly a brilliant man, educated in, in the, the finest of, uh, under the finest of rabbis. This guy was a, was a blue chip, like, world-class guy. He was an entrepreneur, started churches. And I'm thinking if Saul and Barnabas were in an American church, we would uh, hoard them. And we would build a building campaign around them. And we would feature their preaching in the pulpit, and we'd build a megaplex on the edge of town, and we would tell everybody to come listen to this gifted teaching, and we would hoard, and we would keep, and we would gather. However, when I look at the Antioch church, I see the exact opposite. Rather than keeping, I see them sending. Rather than gathering in, I see them giving out. And all joking aside, you know, sending Sam from Heritage was a blow to our church in a selfish sense. Super gifted, could do a thousand things, gifted worship leader, gifted preacher, gifted shepherd. But what a blessing to lay hands on him and the team and send to, to Grant's Pass. Look what God has done through the selflessness of the people of heritage. You know, praise God. Yeah, praise God. And as I think about that, I, th I think about the topic of, of stewardship, honestly. The topic of God glorifying stewardship. 
of what it means for us to steward the things that God has blessed us with. And that's actually what I want to talk with you about this morning. At Heritage, we, we, we have some specific language around discipleship and the process of discipleship, and I know you do here as well. I'll share a little bit of what our language is at Heritage because I want to walk, I want to ask eight questions today. So if you're a note taker, I don't have slides, but if you're a note taker, I'm going to ask and answer hopefully eight questions today as we journey through Luke 19. But at Heritage, we, we define a disciple simply as someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. And so the first question is, what is a disciple? We believe that's a disciple. We believe that a disciple of Jesus Christ has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. We think a disciple can, encompasses all three of those aspects. And so we, we, we as churches, we want to make, we want, we want to raise up and send out disciples of Christ for the mission of Christ to the glory of God. That's what we want to do. And so we want to engage in a process of discipleship. And so the second question I want to answer is simply this. What is discipleship? We know what a disciple is, but what is a disciple? And we, we know that this is the process of being molded and shaped and formed into the image of Jesus. Here's how we describe discipleship, the process of discipleship back at Heritage in, in Medford. We say in discipleship, we walk with Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live and love as Jesus did to the glory of God. So that's how we define discipleship. I'll say that to you again. In discipleship, we walk with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live and love as Jesus did to the glory of God. This is the Christian life. This is what we're engaged in. This is this process. It's, it's a lifelong journey. And, and anyone who's walked with Jesus for any length of time will tell you that oftentimes it's two steps forward, one step back. There's seasons of, of flourishing and even seasons of dryness. There's difficulty and then there's, there's seasons where we're growing like crazy. But it's this, it's this lifelong, it's like long obedience in the same direction of pursuing God, walking as Jesus would walk. The Spirit of God molds us and shapes us and forms us so we can be the aroma of Christ to the world around us. This is the Christian life. And so with that vision of disciple and discipleship, I want us to hone in on one aspect of discipleship, which is God-glorifying stewardship. I want us to think for a second about God-glorifying stewardship. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke 19. We're going to be in verses 11 through 27. We're going to take a look at what it means for us through the, the parable of the ten minas of what it looks like for us as disciples to practice God-glorifying stewardship. And I think as we work through this, this parable, we'll see how Jesus kind of teaches us what's at the heart of, of God-glorifying stewardship, and he does so through the use of parable. So beginning in 19, verse 11. I'll read it in, in one, one sitting. As they heard these things he proceeded, Jesus, to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Now, a mina was about the equivalency of three months' salary for a laborer. Ten to fifteen thousand dollars, depending on how much you get paid. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him 
and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained in doing business or gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with some interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has more will be given. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from, him, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Amen. Now this is a parable. A parable is a, is a known thing that is used to reveal an unknown thing to the audience. In the case of this parable, Jesus is a known earthly thing. Uh, He's using this story of a nobleman who goes off to receive a kingdom. And the context would be in this first audience was that the background uh, was, was Archelaus, who was a child of Herod the Great, who went off to Rome to receive a kingdom as a client king on behalf of Rome. So this idea of a nobleman going off to receive a kingdom would have resonated with this original audience. And, and as you look at this parable, there's lots that Jesus is doing with this parable. I'm going to say three things broadly. We're going to only focus on one. But just for the sake of understanding, what is Jesus doing with this parable? Well, one, he's clarifying the time of the appearance of the kingdom of God. Secondly, he he is realistically portraying the coming rejection and the future return of the Lord. So there's eschatological implications to this parable, and that's what we've been studying in Daniel over the last several weeks. But what I want to focus on this parable for is is the final thing that Jesus is doing here. He's delineating the role of a disciple in the time between the Lord's ascension or departure and his return. And so today, I want us to focus on this this final function of the parable. Jesus is getting at the heart of God-glorifying stewardship here. Now, I know as you hear hear me mention that word, that that it can get weird. So I'm just going to ask you a question, and I want you to reply audibly. When I say the word stewardship, you think of money, right? So you're thinking, okay. So Sam's sick, this lead pastor from Heritage on us to give us the money talk. Is that what's going on here? Sam has no idea what I'm talking about today. So that is not, we are not talking solely about money today. We're talking about stewardship. It's so much more broad than simply a financial thing. This is, this is about discipleship and about us being molded and shaped and formed more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to our, our third question. Because, by the way, as we think about the word steward, 
and stewardship. At the most basic level, a steward is a manager of resources that have been entrusted to them for the benefit of the owner. Did you hear that? So a steward is someone who is managing resources entrusted to them, and they're doing so on behalf of the lender or on behalf of the owner. And so this gets us to our, our third question. Not what is a disciple and what is discipleship, but the third question is what is God-glorifying stewardship? I've worked pretty hard at crafting a response to that that I believe is biblical. I'm not sure if you can write this down. I'm going to read it twice. Here's my, here's my best stab, my best effort at defining what is God-glorifying stewardship. God-glorifying stewardship recognizes that all we are and all we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to God. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have been given is to be used for the glory of God. I'm going to read that again. God-glorifying stewardship recognizes that all we are and all we have has been given to us by God through Jesus Christ, and it belongs to God. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have has been given to us to be used for the glory of God. That's God-glorifying stewardship. And so what can we learn today about what it means for us as disciples of Christ to be God-glorifying stewards of all that we are and all that we have? Let's ask God by his spirit to help us understand that today. Father, we come before you. We're going to spend a few moments now journeying through this parable of 10 minas. And God, I know that you know exactly what's going on in our inner world. God, I know you know exactly what's going on in our lives. I know that you are sovereign over us. You are sovereign over this church, God. My prayer today is as we, as we open this word and as we dive in this word and as we, as we seek truth about what it means for us to engage in God-glorifying stewardship, God, that you by your spirit would help us to see the things we need to see. That you would bring appropriate levels of conviction, not shame, but conviction that can be responded to with repentant obedience. God, I pray that you would work in our midst, God, that you would stir among us and that you would grow us, that individually and corporately we would be sanctified and molded more into the image of your son, not so that we can beat our chest and make much of ourselves, but so that you can be revealed to the world through us. God, we love you. We invite you to meet with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I really struggled to come up with an illustration here, like a fun story, and I'll give you my best effort. So I imagine there was a guy who had a child, like an eight-year-old child, and this guy was, uh, was an entrepreneur, owned a chocolate and a candy factory, like massive, like Willy Wonka-style, huge factory. And imagine that at the front of this factory, there was like a little outlet store where you could go in and you could buy all, all sorts of candy. But behind the store was just this massive machine that made just obscene amounts of candy that were shipped all over the world. Now imagine this dad takes his eight-year-old into this candy factory one day before school, and he says to his child, hey, go ahead and grab a bag of candy for every one of your classmates. And so his daughter or son grabs all these candies, and she's like, but dad, I don't want to give these to my classmates. I want to keep these. This is my favorite candy. He's like, sweetheart, no, we're going to give these. I'm, I'm giving you these to bless those in your class. Like, take these 27 bags of Skittles or whatever it is, and bless, or candy bar, whatever your favorite candy is, and bless your classmates. And his daughter's like, you know, Dad, these are my favorite candy. I don't want to give them away. I want to keep them. They're mine. He's like, sweetheart, look behind you. I have a factory 
Like these are nothing. This is nothing compared to the opulent things that I, I can give you more candy than you'll give up in a thousand lifetimes. Now take what I've given you and bless those in your class. This is the picture of discipleship and this child has, a, or of, of stewardship and this child has a decision to make. Does this child say, nope, mine. My favorite kind of candy, I want to keep this candy to myself. I'm not going to give it to my friends. Or this child has the opportunity to say, you know, I've been blessed with much and I'm going to bless those around me with much. So here's the main idea of today. As we talk about God glorifying stewardship, we're going to start with the premise that God is the owner of all things. Listen to that. God is the owner of all things. I mean all things. It's all from him and it all belongs to him. He owns all the Skittles. Our job as disciples is to steward or to manage his assets for his benefit. One theologian puts it this way. He says, a steward is one who manages or administers the estate, affairs, or goods of another. Inherent in this definition is the fact that a steward is not the owner of what he or she manages and is therefore accountable to the actual owner. Biblical stewardship is based on the concept that God is the owner of all things and that the human race has been created to manage what he has created. The command in Genesis 1.28, which reads, quote, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, over every living thing that, make, that, that moves on the earth, this command further exemplifies the fact that God is the creator owner and man is the creature servant. God is the creator owner and man is the creature servant. The idea that ownership is ultimately God's can sometimes be hard for us as human beings. Let's just be honest. It's hard for me. I mean, we, we work hard for what we have. I was, I was raised with that virtue. My dad was a logger, didn't graduate from high school. Neither did my mom. And my dad was a logger in Montana my whole life, getting up at two in the morning to drive obscene miles to the mountains where he carried a chainsaw up and down the mountains for 39 years uh, falling trees to barely keep enough food on the table for us to survive. My dad taught me at a very early age that if you work hard and you apply yourself, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anybody you want to be. And I believe that. And in America, we've got that value of hard work, and I think it's a good value. My old college track coach used to have a sign on his desk that said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I love that old thing. And I agree with it. And we celebrate these stories in America. We love the rags to riches story. We love the stories of self-made men and self-made women. The American dream is that anyone from any walk of life can make their dreams come true through hard work, through dedication, through resolve. And I, I, I've got three kids. They're all adults now, but I raised my kids with those virtues. I told my kids, you know, if you're punctual, if you have a can-do attitude, if you show up early and, and you, have, you have a good work ethic and you're a learner and you're a collaborator, the sky is the limit. You can do whatever you want. And I believe all that's true. So the problem isn't with these virtues. The problem comes when we do find success, when our hard work does pay off, when doors are open and when provision finally pours in, we look at the sum total of our efforts. We have a tendency to look at the sum total of our efforts and we become like that eight-year-old in the story. We say to God and others, mine, look what I've done. Look what I've built. Look what I've assembled. Which is a failure to recognize that we are and we have and all we have comes from God. All that we are and all that we have comes from God. Now, as, as a quick aside, I, I recognize that anytime we have discussions about stewardship, there can be um, some PTSD in the room. And I recognize that. I've been around church long enough that, that, that oftentimes there have been some, um, 
leaders that have manipulated or been poor leaders in this area, and perhaps there are some of you in this room that have been taken advantage of, spiritually manipulated when it comes to this issue, and I, and I recognize that. Perhaps there are some of you in this room that have been browbeaten in, into, into to give more and more and more by church leaders that were hungry to build their own kingdom, and I recognize that that might be the case. And, and, and I, I want to just say to you, if that's been your case, that I'm like legitimately deeply sorry. If, if your understanding of stewardship was, was intermingled with, with manipulation and, and, and humans building human kingdoms, my hope is that as we, as we journey through this, if that is your story, if there's a wound that exists in your life as a disciple of Jesus when it comes to this issue, that you'd be patient and that you'd listen, that you'd lean into one another and that you would process those fears and those hangups together with someone else. And so we, we first looked into what Jesus modeled in stewardship, but, but before we jump into how he modeled, because I want to, because, you know, if you think about discipleship, we, we kind of believe, you know, Heritage, we've talked a lot about this. When we start talking about discipleship, we want to look to the gospels. We want to look to Jesus as the ultimate example of a disciple. And we want to look at what Jesus taught his disciples about what it meant to be a disciple. So we like to go to the gospels when we have these discussions. And so I, I want us to just simply kind of for a second, just kind of go to the gospels. And, and this isn't one of the eight questions, but you know, I know we're in a church and I know you know the answer to this, but who is Jesus? Let's think about that for a second. If, if discipleship is being molded into the image of Jesus, let's, let's just ask that question here for a second. There's a great little book. Maybe you've read it. It's called, it's called Deeper, written by Dane Ortland, where he talks about the heart of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels. And, and here's, what, here's what Ortland says. He says, our growth is not independent personal improvement. As disciples, our growth is in Christ. And if we be, believe that discipleship is growing in Christ-likeness, we, we can have a, a proper understanding of and a, proper, and a biblical vision of who Jesus is. And in Ortland, in his book, he has this fear that many people who spent much of their years in the church, they have sort of domesticated Jesus, or they have a domesticated view of Jesus. Say, yeah, yeah you understand doctrine. You understand that, that Jesus uh, came from heaven as the Son of God. You understand that he came to live a life we could never live and die a death that we deserve to die. You understand that. You affirm his glorious resurrection. You affirm with all of the ancient creeds that he, in fact, is fully God and fully man. But Ortland contends that we have a domesticated view that for all its doctrinal precision has downsized the glory of Christ in our hearts and in our lives. As I was reading through my transcript, or I've been reading through this little book that I wanted to share this one little thought. It's a little book called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent about the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. Not a domesticated view, but like a grand view of Jesus and a grand view of his gospel. Listen to what Vincent writes. Outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density is found inside the gospel. This must be so, for the Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God. Nothing else in all of scripture is ever described in this way except for the person of Jesus Christ. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he goes on to say. Indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun, and in the lightning speed of a recently discovered star streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles an hour. And yet, in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. 
How powerful then must the gospel be, the gospel of Jesus Christ be, that it would merit such a title? And how great is the salvation it could accomplish in my life if I would only embrace it by faith and give it the central place in my thoughts each day? I love the, the, the anti-domesticated view of Jesus that Vincent upholds in that little devotional. And so if you took, if you look at the 10 verses that, that come before what we just read in, in, in Luke 19, we see different aspects of Jesus, right? This is a gospel. It's telling us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so right before our text that I read this morning, we have the story of Zacchaeus, this despised tax collector, the little dude that climbed up the tree. And, and, and Jesus, what's he do? He, he befriends this sinner and he, he goes to his home and Jesus chooses to love a man that everyone hates, which ignites real change in the life of Zacchaeus. And then in, in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says something amazing about why he came. I like to think of Luke 19, 10 as the personal mission statement of Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. He said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And then he gets into our text about him being king and returning and about managing the resources he gives us. And so in just the, those 27 verses of Luke 19, we, we see Jesus as friend of sinners. We see Jesus as savior who seeks and saves the lost. We see Jesus as king. And it makes me wonder, how many kings do you know of? How many global leaders do you know of? How many heads of state do you know that seek and save the lost or that befriend sinners? And yet this is the depiction we have of Jesus here in, gospel, in Luke 19. Think of how these three dimensions of Jesus add to our, our, our understanding of him in, in just 27 verses. I think Ortland says something like that Jesus is unsearchable. I think he's referring to, to Romans 11 where Paul writes, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. And last quote of the day. Again, Ortland, here's what he says. Let me finish with this in, in this section. He says, let me suggest that you consider the possibility that your current mental idea of Jesus is simply the tip of the iceberg. That there are wondrous depths to him, realities about him that are still awaiting your discovery. Open yourself up to the possibility that one reason you've seen modest growth and ongoing sin in your life is that the Jesus you are following is a junior varsity Jesus, an unwittingly reduced Jesus, an unsurprising and predictable Jesus. This is the king who befriends sinners and saves the lost and so much more. He is the one in whose image we are being shaped and formed as disciples of Jesus. Now, all of this is a long setup for the meat of today's talk. As we look at God glorifying stewardship and the fourth question, how did Jesus model stewardship? As we look at the gospels and as we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, how did he model stewardship? If we use the, the framework of time, talent, and treasure, that's sort of a comprehensive way to think about all that we have and all that we are. If we think about that as a framework to refer to the whole of who we are and what we have, how did Jesus then exemplify the stewardship of his time and of his talent and of his treasure? I read this week that God came into history as the man Jesus Christ. He left the riches and glory of his heavenly kingdom for poverty and humility. His life was perfectly stewarded. Vocationally, he spent most of his life working an honest job as a carpenter. Financially, even though he was poor, Jesus paid his taxes and generously gave to those in need. His public ministry included, as he said, doing the works of the Father that he'd been given by the Father. 
On the cross, Jesus became the most generous giver that the world has ever known. It was on the cross that he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. On the cross, he took our condemnation and gave us salvation. He took our death and gave us life. Following the resurrection, Jesus has continued to be generous. He's given us the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts for ministry service. And he is preparing for us as we gather today. He is preparing for us a place where we will enjoy his generosity together with him forever and ever. And so I don't need to convince you that Jesus perfectly modeled God-glorifying stewardship with the totality of who he was. Fifth question. What did Jesus teach about stewardship? That takes us back to our text today. Jesus headed to Jerusalem and as he was heading, so right after our text, he's like, he's, he's journeying to the cross, right? And as he's heading to Jerusalem, we know the stories of the gospel. The, the, the disciples are arguing about who gets to sit closer to him because they, they think, they're thinking political kingdom. They're thinking worldly power. They're thinking we're going to rise above the Roman occupation. We're going to assert the dominance and the sovereignty of Israel once again with the Messiah King. That's what they're thinking. And so as Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, he speaks this parable in part to straighten out their thinking. He says to them, uh, in verse 11, we read that they, they suppose, these disciples and his followers suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And that's what they're thinking. And so Jesus is telling him through parable form, that, that's wrong thinking. That's not how this thing is going to work. They thought Jesus was going to take his throne, but Jesus knew that he was going to die on a cross. He was going to rise from the death and he was going to ascend to the Father. And so he gives this parable to prepare them then, the original audience, for how to live in that time frame between his ascension and his return. Well, guess where we live? We live in the same time frame between the ascension and the return of Jesus. So this applies to us as well. And so what does Jesus say? He says, a noble man was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver. And he said to them, invest this for me while I'm gone. Lots of language of a returning king. There's lots, lots of eschatology in this passage as Jesus is preparing his people for his eventual return. But here we see that he gives out these minas to these servants. Every servant receiving this three months salary, this three months of labor to be invested. And as we look at the text, we see really four groups of people. Let me draw your attention to them. The first group we see are the hateful citizens in verses 14 and 27. They're characterized by rejecting the reign, of the, the reign of the king. We do not want this man to reign over us, they say. And the king's response we see in the last verse of our text today is that he has them slaughtered. There is great punishment for rejecting the reign of the king. Group two, we see the wicked servants. They didn't invest anything. They kept it hidden in a handkerchief. They're characterized by their lack of trust and unfaithfulness. And they end up saying untrue things about the king in verses 20 and 21. The king's response is he condemns them as wicked. He calls them wicked servants. And then we have group three. Let's call them the sufficient servants. They get received, these mina, this mina, they, they invest it, and they make five more. They say, you know, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And his response to their sufficiency in investing is to reward them with more authority. The king says, you are to be over five cities. And then after we have these first three, the, the, the hateful citizens, the wicked servants, and the sufficient servants, the fourth group is the good servants. They're characterized by trust in the king. 
and their faithful investment of all that he had entrusted to them. Lord, your mina has made 10 more. They took three months' salary and they turned, into, turned it into over two and a half years' worth of wages by their investment. And so the king commends them as good servants and he gives them more authority in verse 17. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And in fact, he even takes the mina from the unfaithful or the wicked servants. In other words, the king says in verses, verse 26, to those who use well what they're given, even more will be given, but to those who do nothing, even what they have will be taken away. So the good servant is entrusted with another mina to invest. And so I've thought about that. I'm like, okay, I'm trying to put it myself in, the, in, in this story, though it's a parable. I'm trying to think about this. And I'm like, okay, so there's the good servants who have faithfully worked. They've worked diligently. They've been given much responsibility. They took the mina of the king and they invested it wisely doing God knows what. And they, and they brought back this massive return for the investment. And the king returns from being far way off, the nobleman. And how does he reward them? Does he tell them to go build the house of their dreams and on a lake and build a long dock that they can sit on and dangle their feet in the water and fish and sort of just rest the rest of their lives basking in their good investments? No, quite the contrary. He, he says them that you're going to be over, you, the sufficient servants, you're going to be over five cities. To, to the, the good servants, you're going to have the authority over 10 cities. There's this trusting relationship between the king and his servants and the rewards are relational. The, the, the reward of the king is more trust from the king. Greater work for the glory of the king. Their faithfulness leads to greater responsibility. One theologian puts it this way. The reward for faithful service is not rest, but more service. This is entirely pleasing to the servant of God. The reward for work well done was more work to do. The great reward of God to the man or woman who has satisfied the test is more trust. Boy, I see as your church is growing. I heard Ryan talk about this prayerful pursuit of, God, what are you doing at Philippi? How can we steward what you're doing in our midst? And will it require faithful stewardship of what God has given? I mean, one thing you could say is like, no, we like what we got. Let's close the doors. Let's keep this thing safe. Or you could say, God, you've blessed us with influence and a body of believers that are wickedly gifted and the capacity to, to go into the city, into the streets of Grants Pass with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and do incredible things for the glory of God. And I know that that's a hard process of discerning and seeking the Lord, but it'd be so easy just to say, we don't want any more responsibility. We want to rest on our laurels and take it easy. Thank God you're not doing that. Notice how the king doesn't tell his servants how to invest either doesn't tell them what strategies to employ, where to invest their mina. He just entrusts them with their gifts and their wisdom and their abilities to invest, and they do. And so we see these four groups. We see hateful citizens. We see wicked servants, sufficient servants, and good servants. But there is a fifth person in the, in the parable, which is sort of the point of the parable, and we cannot forget the returning king. The king goes away to get a kingdom. He's given a whole kingdom, and then he returns and he has been entrusted with an entire kingdom. In the parable here, he is the perfect steward. And Jesus, of course, is the one with whom is receiving the kingdom. And as we apply the parable to the gospel, this returning king is the picture of the returning Jesus. One day Jesus will return. We sang about it this morning. And we will stand before him. And when we stand before Jesus, he will ask, what have you done with what I've entrusted to you? And so what's the point of all of this? 
What is Jesus saying to his servants in this parable? Here's what I think he's saying. Faithfully invest all that God has entrusted to you. All that you are and all that you have. Faithfully entrust all that God has entrusted to you and expect God's reward for doing so. Not worldly reward, but God's reward. And so if the desire of Jesus for his disciples is that you and me, is that we are to faithfully invest all that he has entrusted to us, well, this leads us to our sixth question. As disciples of Jesus Christ, here's where the rubber kind of meets the road. Where are you? Where am I? Where are we concerning God-glorifying stewardship? You know, I'm going to ask you a statement, and I want you, this is you. This is for you, not for the person to your left or to your right. I want you to use this statement as a diagnostic right now of your life. Am I an excellent steward of the gifts of God? Am I an excellent steward of the gifts that God has given me, my time, my money, my talents, my physical body, my family, my possessions, my gifts, etc., etc., etc.? Am I an excellent steward of the gifts that God has given me? Ask yourself that question. And I imagine these five people, imagine the five people in our story. Let's put them on a continuum from failing to flourishing. Okay, let's look at the hateful citizens who refuse the rule and reign of the king, utterly turn their back on, on the king's authority. Let, let's think of the wicked servants who said, yeah, you gave me something, but I did nothing with it. Buried it, did no, put it in a handkerchief, could care less about doing something with what you gave me. Let's think about the, the sufficient servant invested some of what they had been given and had some return for it. Let's think about the, the, the good servant who invested faithfully to the best of their ability all that they had been entrusted by the king and had great return. And let's think about this perfect servant, the king who was given an entire kingdom, the perfect steward. So we have a scale of one, two, three, four, and five from failing to flourishing. And I want you to begin thinking about your life right now. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. I want you to think about your life right now, about your time. How are you investing your time? How are you investing your time right now? Boy, I know the, I know the allure of the instant scroll, the, the endless scroll. I get it. I know there's so much lobbying for our time, vying for our attention. How are you investing your time? Do you view your time as a gift from God that ought to be given back to God as an offering the minutes, hours, and days he's blessed you with? Is your schedule open to God for him to use it for his purposes? Do you recognize the importance of Sabbath in your life, the rhythms of the Christian life? Do you prioritize your time for the sake of meeting with him and serving others? How about this? Is your calendar open for blessed distractions? I once time heard Henry Nowen in the book talk about a professor, a friend of his at Notre Dame. And he said at the end of this professor's career, he was lamenting one day. He's like, my whole career, I was trying to do research, trying to do the work of academia as a, as a, as a, as a Jesuit priest. And he's like, and I would get so frustrated when these distractions would walk into my office or walk into my classroom, distracting me from the work I came to do. It took me 40 years of work to realize that the distractions were my work. How are you investing your time? How about your talent? How are you investing your talent? Do you view the gifts, the abilities, the skills, the talents that God has given you as a gift from God that ought to be given back to him as an offering? 
I was talking to one of you this morning who I know is a very gifted artist who I know has given talents back to the kingdom through the, the wondrous gift of art. Are your talents available to God to be used for his purposes? Do you serve others with your talents? Do you view your God-given talents as a gift that must be shared for the good of others and for the glory of God? How about your treasure? How are you investing your treasures? Do you give up your finances, your assets, your possessions? Do you view them as a gift from God that ultimately belong to him? that really belongs to him and ought to be given back to him as an offering or as an investment for his kingdom and not your own? Are your treasures available to God to be used for his purposes? Do you view your God-given treasures as a gift from God that needs to be invested like the good servant for the purpose of expanding the kingdom? Now, if a steward or a manager of resources is entrusted to manage those resources on behalf of the owner... And if God-glorifying stewardship recognizes that all we are and all we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to God, therefore, as stewards, we recognize that every resource we have has been given to us to be used for the glory of God. If that is true, if those statements are true, if that's the goal, where did you rate yourself? On a scale of one to five. I want to, honestly, I want you to rate yourself. I'm not asking you to rate yourself for shame. This is not about shame. This is, I'm asking you to rate yourself because... I, my challenge in a minute will be that the only goal is to take a step toward growth. My wife and I had a guy who invested in our life for years, a pastor who made all the difference, sort of reparented both of us. And he used to have this simple phrase. He said, Paul, Becky, just put yourself in a position to grow. Just put yourself in a posture where you can grow. It's not about shaming where you're at. It's about putting yourself in a position of growth so God can have his way with you. So on the scale of one to five, we have the hateful citizen, Perhaps you, if you're honest with yourself today, you have rejected the reign of Christ over what's yours. That's where you are, that's where you are. Perhaps you're more of a wicked servant. You've done nothing with what God has entrusted to you. Maybe you're the sufficient servant. You've invested some of what God has entrusted to you. Perhaps you're a good servant and you have sought holistically to invest the whole of who you are and what you have for the sake of the kingdom and none of you are perfect servants. So let's not even go to five. So we've got... One through five in your heart of hearts or on your notes, I want you to rate yourself right now. Write it down or make a mental note where you're at. Because that takes us to our seventh question. How can I, how can you, how can we grow as God-glorifying stewards? No matter where you find yourself on the scale of one to four as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the only question you really need to worry about asking yourself is what does that next step toward growth look like for you? To grow as a God-glorifying steward, it, it doesn't involve checklists and legalisms. I'm telling you that right now. It's all about heart alignment and surrender. So the first place we've got to stop, if we want to grow in this area, we've got to agree with God that you own nothing, that I own nothing. We own nothing. It's all a gift from him. We have to agree with King David who wrote in Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, it's all his. We have to agree with the teaching of the Bible that teaches that all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by God through Christ and ultimately belongs to God. We have to agree with the Bible that whatever blessings you and I have are purely gifts from God. I'll quote James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. We have to take the posture of good servants and we have to resolve to faithfully invest all that God has entrusted to you and to me 
And we get to expect his reward for doing so. And so before we speak about the practical ways that we can grow in the area of stewardship, our heart posture toward our time and our talent and our treasure needs to be one that recognizes everything is God's. Everything is God's. All that we are and all that we have is a gift from God. It's in light of that truth that we can begin to live as God-glorifying stewards. And there's a million ways that looks. It may mean practicing disciplines like tithing, almsgiving, or dedicated hours of prayer. It may mean going without things that we cannot afford and, and working hard to put ourselves in a financial position where we can actually bless others, getting out of debt. It may mean making choices to be generous with our time and our talent and our treasure without forsaking our responsibilities to steward rest and family and work. It may mean using our creative skills for the good of others or employing our spiritual gifts to serve the church or our community. We partner with the Holy Spirit by offering these resources we've been entrusted and we give it back to God for his use. I gotta tell you, I hear stories when I'm backpacking with Sam and I know Jeremy and, and, and Aaron are sort of borrowed elders for a season until God has completed raising up an el- a full elder board here. And so I hear all the time the story of what God is doing here. I'm a fan from afar. I am. I'm a fan from afar. We pray for you. We're so grateful for what we see. Uh, when I observe what happens, what's happening at, at Philippi from afar, um, I hear testimony about what God is doing in your midst, about what God is doing in and through this church we give praise to God for the ways that you as a church here in Grants Pass are stewarding your time and stewarding your talent and stewarding your treasure. And we continue to partner with you. We, you said that we're the mother church. No, we are. We're sister churches. We are co-laborers for the sake of the gospel in Southern Oregon. We are gratefully yoked with what God is doing at Philippi. And we ask God to grow you in the right ways, in healthy ways that bring glory to God. And not the least of which is that God would grow this church in the area of stewardship. God-glorifying stewardship can look so many different ways. It can look like stewardship of spiritual gifts. This is seen in the teacher who stewards her gifts to proclaim the gospel and help to raise up a generation of Christ-following children. This can look like someone stewarding the passions that God has placed in their hearts. The coach who stewards his time and his talents to coach a sport, to, to be a parable of Jesus in the community, coaching baseball, volleyball, soccer, whatever speaking into the lives of young, impressionable minds, modeling godly character through the service and through the the use of passion. It can look like the stewardship of personality. It's seen in the extrovert who stewards her personality and goes out of her way to get to know the neighbor and to practice God-glorifying hospitality. The extrovert who has the, 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 the ability to lift her eyes and see the stranger as neighbor. And to invite the neighbor into their home and see the neighbor as friend. And through the context of friendship, lead that neighbor into the family of God. It's seen in the stewardship of abilities. I think of the tradesmen who I know that are so gifted, so smart, so talented, who hop on a plane twice a year to fly to Mexico or or to to journey across town and come alongside the shut-in and steward the gifts, the abilities God has given them to do functional things, practical things for the glory of God, both to those who are far from God and those who are in the family of God. It's a stewardship of experiences. Now listen, I want you to hear this because this is super important. God has allowed certain experiences to happen in your life. Many good experiences. Celebrating an engagement over here. A really great experience. But I know because I've been doing this for a lot of years, there's in this room today, there are mortal wounds. 
there are searing losses that have left you on your face in sackcloth and ashes. And part of my experience has been in the body of Christ, watching men and women who have journeyed through the valley of the shadow of death rise to their feet with the power of God. The, the, the parents, I think specifically of parents who have grieved at the graves of their children, who then show up at the funeral home to wrap their arms around parents who've just lost a child and to say, I understand the darkness you're facing. I've walked through that valley myself. I'm going to steward my experience, as painful as it was, that you may see Jesus in the midst of the darkest season of your life. So we steward all of these things for the glory of God. It's not an attempt to earn God's favor. That's what legalism is. Legalism says do. The gospel says done. Our stewardship flows from what Christ has already given. Our giving is a result of the gospel. God glorifying stewardship earns us nothing. We already have all that we need in Jesus Christ. As those who have been forgiven and saved by God, giving is a joyous offering done in response to all that God has given to us in his son. As benefactors of the generosity of God through Jesus, we generously give as a freewill offering to the glory of God. As God-glorifying stewards, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to him. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have has been given to us to be used for the glory of God. And this takes us to our final question. Number eight, how can we help each other grow as God-glorifying stewards? How can we help each other grow as God-glorifying stewards? We know others and we seek to be known by others. We do not grow in a vacuum. It takes life on life. And we don't even grow through programs of the church. Now, I know good leadership creates mechanisms for people to connect with one another, but it's not the church program that grows us. It's life on life discipleship that grows us. You and I won't grow as God-glorifying stewards in a vacuum. We need each other. And so what does this look like? I, I suppose it could be a rebuke, but I think more often than not, it's a proactive approach. What if, think about the life of, of Philippi today. What if you, as a body of believers here, were, were to share with those you're in a relationship with what you see as their gifts in a proactive, affirming way to fan the flame that God has placed in their hearts? If you were to say, sister, God has given you the ability to step into people's lives and with, with, like, with like the heart of Jesus, share in people's suffering and show compassion. That is a gift, sister. Use that for the glory of God. Or brother, God has given you artistic gifts, amazing artic, artistic gifts to, to reveal the truth of the gospel in visual and in, in an auditory ways. Use those gifts for the glory of God. Steward it. Or we, we were to say, friend, God has blessed you with sweet time and a lifetime of wisdom in retirement. Don't buy the lie that you're to spend your golden years at the edge of the dock fishing, dangling your feet in the water. You're far too valuable for that. There are young men and women in your midst who are dying for relationship and wisdom and understanding. So my retired friend, steward this gift that God has given you. Couple, dear couple, who've gone through horrific years in your marriage. You've healed for, through seasons of great sorrow, but God has healed your marriage and you're walking as a reflection of the gospel. Open up your home to young marriage in your church. Share your story, your pains and your successes. Steward that. It can go on and on. Parents, you've, you've raised kids. You've, you, you've, you've walked with a, with a wayward child, a prodigal. You know what it's like to beg for God to bring a child back. Come alongside families that are experiencing that for the first time. Professionals, you, God has allowed you to blaze trails in your profession, make mistakes and have success 
successes, and there's young professionals in this church who would love to have a Christ-exalting vision of how to steward their profession for the glory of God. Share it, share it, share it. Lean into one another. Can you imagine a community of believers gifted by God with time and talent and treasure faithfully investing in each other's lives? Disciples making disciples. Not a program, but life on life. Sharpening one another. And there's some of you in this room who are a four when it comes to stewardship. God has allowed you to, to not have money as an idol. God has allowed you to steward your time and your talent in a way that's glorifying to him. You have much to share with the people around you. If that's something God has done in your life, share it. I can just see this community around us being transformed as you spill out of the walls of Philippi each and every Sunday as good servants stepping to the, into the world and generously sharing yourself with an unbelieving world. When the people of God are sent out into the mission field to faithfully invest all that God has entrusted them, they reflect Jesus to an unbelieving world. Jesus was the perfect steward, and when we practice God-glorifying stewardship, we're making him known. This is the stewardship of the gospel. We know this gospel well. We've been saved by this gospel. Now we need to share the gospel with others. So in conclusion, as we learn to walk with Jesus as disciples of Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live in love as Jesus did for the glory of God who came to seek and save the lost. As God-glorifying stewards, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to God. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have has been given to us and is to be used for the glory of God. So we take the posture of a good servant and as disciples of Jesus Christ, we resolve to faithfully invest all that God has entrusted and we expect his reward for doing so. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray? Oh, Father, I'm grateful for what you're doing in this body of believers, God. And I know that you know exactly who's here. God, I know that you know, God, exactly where each one of us is in our life today. God, I pray. God, I pray that as we let the, 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 the preaching of your word kind of settle into us, God, that you would guard us against offensive posturing. God, I pray that if we have, if there's some of us here today who have felt conviction, that we wouldn't confuse that with shame. But God, we would receive that as a gift of the Holy Spirit, conviction that would require confession and repentance that we could turn our face to you and walk in obedience. God, I pray for this church. God, they've been blessed. They've been given much here. You're, you're moving in our midst. God, you're up to something at Philippi. You're up to something in Grants Pass, not for the glory or fame of this church, but for your fame and for your glory. So God, pray for the leadership of this church. Pray for the people of this church. Pray that there, there would be a, a unity in what it looks like to steward well what you've done here. God, raise this church up to, to, to simply exalt your name, to proclaim your gospel, to send out missionaries for your glory. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.